This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our sermon text this morning is from Luke chapter 15. The passage is lengthy this morning, so please remain standing only if you're able. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together the friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, for I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back, safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost 
and is found. This is God's word. All right, good morning. First, don't worry, be happy. I don't plan to uh, cover all 32 verses of Luke 15 this morning. I just wanted to make Steve read it all, and uh, it worked. Uh, The fact of the matter is I plan on taking about three weeks to cover all of Luke 15, and this morning I really only want to focus in on uh, verses 1 through 10. So uh, with that in mind, why would I choose to have uh, all of Luke 15 read this morning? If you'll look down at verse 3, I think you'll begin to see why. It says, So he, speaking of Jesus, told them this parable, singular. In other words, in verses 4 through 32, you have three distinct stories that Luke introduces as a single parable, a single uh, comparison. You might say that this is just one teaching uh, through three distinct Uh, Stories. It's one parabolic discourse that has three chapters. And the third story, the third chapter, uh, while it is one of the most beloved and um, most popular stories in the Bible, the so-called parable of the prodigal son, the reality is, is that parable is the last of three stories in Luke 15, where, as you just heard, something was lost and then found. Verse 4, a sheep. Verse, verse 8, a coin. Verse 24 and verse 32, a son. All were lost and subsequently found. In, in the three chapters of the one parable in Luke 15, three things happen in each story. Something lost is searched for. The lost item is found and returned home. And the community is involved in rejoicing and celebrating the return of the lost. So the entire chapter is one unit in Luke's gospel. And and so in in just looking at verses 1 through 10, I wanted us to keep the entire context, the entire chapter, the entirety of the teaching in mind. I'll allude to it occasionally this morning, and we'll return back again uh, next week. So that long reading was in your worship folder. Uh, Verses 1 through 10 are printed in your worship folder insert a little space in between and some, and some uh, area for you to take notes. And we're going to look at that text this way. The grumbling of the Pharisees, the response of Jesus, and the mission of the church. The grumbling of the Pharisees, the response of Jesus, and the mission of the church. So first, the grumbling of the Pharisees, if you would look down at verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near. More accurately, they kept drawing near to hear Jesus. Verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes, so the Jewish religious leaders, they grumbled or more accurately kept grumbling. This man receives, he waits for, he expects, he welcomes sinners, and he keeps eating with them. So the the word here is not the simple word for eat in the Greek. It's a compound word, actually, for eating with. And the stress is on the connection and the hospitality. The stress is on the fellowship and the friendship. And so the tax collectors and the sinners, they are continually approaching Jesus. And and the the Pharisees and the scribes, excuse me, uh, they're grumbling against Jesus because he continually and habitually welcomed them and wrapped his arms around them, befriended them, and embraced them got to stop for just a second and hear a little bit of the cultural context here to see why they were so scandalized by this. We have to stop and consider the cultural context of that day to see exactly how scandalous this truly was. As you look at verse 2, you'll see that sinners 
I'm going to think of it in quotes, is a more broad category to the scribes and the Pharisees. Tax collectors in verse 1, if you were to study all of Luke, tax collectors are, are one segment of the sinner population for Pharisees and scribes. And so in general terms, in Israel, a sinner was anyone who willfully and repeatedly and publicly disregarded the law of God. Anyone who knew God's law and transgressed it and did not care at all about it. That's a sinner. But more specifically, if you read Jewish writings from this time period, uh, sinners more specifically were men and women who chose professions that kept them continually in the state of being ceremonially unclean or morally filthy. Occupations like shepherds, prostitutes, pimps, and tax collectors. So the dregs of society, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the morally rebellious, the socially despised, were approaching Jesus, kept drawing near to Jesus. He kept wrapping his arms around them. He kept socializing with them. He kept enjoying them. And the tax collectors, the tax collectors were the most hated of all of the sinners. They're like a mix between the mafia and a corrupt politician with no real authority over him. The Romans would conquer or occupy a region like Israel, and they would let locals, local citizens, bid on the right to collect Roman taxes, Roman tolls, and Roman tariffs. The Jewish citizens would bid for the right to be the tax collector. Rome would accept the highest bid, and Rome would get their pay in advance, and then Rome would largely leave town. The tax collector had an entire year to collect what he felt was fair taxes from the citizens of that region. The tax collectors and the thugs would take what they wanted, and there was no real threat of justice anywhere around. If you read the literature of the day, if you read Jewish historical accounts, you'll see that it's a well-attested-to practice, that there is no example in the literature of a tax collector who is just and fair and right and true. It's actually inferred in Luke chapter 3. If you were to read Luke 3, John the Baptist is, is preaching and he's answering questions. And he tells tax collectors, he says, if you want to live a life in keeping with repentance, if you want to live a, a life more in line with the kingdom of God, this is the direct instruction he gives to them. Chapter 3, verse 12. Only collect what you're authorized to collect. Boiled it down to that one sentence. The sinners and the tax collectors were hated by the general populace. The Pharisees and the scribes were scandalized by Jesus' reception of them. In our day and age, verse 1 would imply something like this. Now, Hugh Hefner and Sharon Stone kept approaching Jesus. Hell's angels, gang members, the Crips and the Bloods kept approaching Jesus. Al Capone and John Gotti kept drawing near to Jesus. Jesus kept receiving and eating with Jenna Jameson and Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. You don't know who that is, one of the most prolific porn stars of the last 20 years and the first couple that accidentally videotaped themselves in intimate settings to make millions on the web. That's who was drawing near to Jesus, and he kept socializing with them, receiving them, enjoying them, befriending them. And the Jewish leaders were scandalized. They were grumbling and they were murmuring and they were boiling over with what they would have called righteous indignation. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees, you have to keep in mind, this is why they're so upset. They're, they're upset because they're trying to earn their salvation. They're trying to work for the return of the Messiah. They believe that God would send the Messiah as soon as Israel obeyed the law. And they believe that if anyone in Israel would not obey the law, that they should be ostracized, condemned, never even touched Luke 7 in the case of a prostitute. That, that these, these, these outsiders, these sinners, if they wouldn't enjoy them and join in with them in earning their salvation, they had to be despised and kicked to the edges and not even received when they approach. And so that's the grumbling of the Pharisees in verses one and two. Look at the response of Jesus. Secondly, starting in verse three. So he told them this parable. That's the context for the, the parable with three chapters. And before Jesus gets to the so-called prodigal son, the sinner, verse 18, before he gets to the one who spent his inheritance partying with prostitutes, before Jesus tells of him being received and celebrated, story three of the one parable, before that, Jesus gives the first two stories, the first two chapters of the one parable in verses one through 10. And Jesus in his response is not going to deny. He's not gonna say, I don't receive and eat with sinners. And he's not going to defend. He's not going to say, what am I supposed to do? They keep coming to me and they're repentant. What do you want me to do? He's actually going to respond this way. You don't know the half of it. Jesus is going to say this, guilty as charged and then some. It's as if a police officer walks up to a man and says to the man, you're under arrest for aiding and abetting a criminal. You drove the getaway car. And the man says, yeah, but let's not forget, I'm the guy in the mask who robbed the bank. It's like the IRS coming to a woman and saying, ma'am, you haven't paid income taxes in 10 years. We're here to get all the money that you owe us. And she says, you're right, I've robbed so many banks over the last 10 years, I don't know what to do with all this money. You probably should take some. Jesus says in response, not only do I receive tax collectors and sinners when they approach me, but I seek them out. They're precious to me. They're miserably lost creatures that I care about and that I want to be with. You see, if Jesus' response had begun in verse 11, the story of the rebellious son repentantly returning home, if it would have started in verse 11, that would have made total sense to me after reading verses 1 and 2. His response would have simply been this. These sinners are getting to the end of their rope. They're coming to their senses. They're humbly and repentantly coming home. They're promising to do better. And Jesus would have simply been saying this, God is a gracious God. God is a forgiving God. God is a merciful God. He, he receives repentant sinners. That's true. But that's only the half of it. Before getting to the prodigal son, Jesus says this in verse four. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, rejoice with me, party with me. I found my sheep that was lost. Jesus says, imagine a shepherd counting his sheep at dusk, and he realizes that at some point in the day, one was lost. And Jesus is saying, these sinners that you despise, they're lost sheep. They're valuable to the shepherd. The good shepherd is going to seek them until he finds them. 
Look at his response to their grumbling in verse two. He, he says at the most basic level, I'm not reactively responding to these repentant sinners with grace when they approach me. It's my mission to proactively pursue these lost and rebellious sinners with the gospel so they have a chance to repent. I thought about it a lot this week, how bizarre it was that when Jesus was accused of receiving sinners, he, he, he escalated. He, he took it up a notch. He's like, I don't primarily and in the first place receive sinners. I primarily and in the first place pursue sinners. And I began to think about the ways in which this is true um, of Jesus. And in particular, I began to just study the gospel of Luke for the terms tax collectors and sinners. What, what does Jesus mean that he doesn't wait for them to come to him, but that he goes and finds them? I can't share with you all that I found, but I'll at least share this. In chapter 5, Jesus is calling his disciples, his 12, to live life with him. The 12 through whom he was going to extend his mission. And he intentionally picked Levi, a tax collector. And then in chapter 5, Jesus tells Levi to throw a big party, a grand feast for all of his friends so Jesus could meet them and party with them and get to know them. The friends at the grand party were described as tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus didn't just receive them when they came to listen to him. He befriended them. He called them. He entered into life with them. He went into their houses and he partied with their friends. It's such a habit for Jesus and his disciples that in chapter 7, Jesus mentions the fact that he is commonly referred to as a drunk and a glutton. He so often ate bread and drank wine with irreligious people that the Pharisees and the scribes accused him of not only being a gluttonous drunk, but they accused him of being, quote, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't deny. He doesn't defend. He says exactly. But you don't know the half of it. In a few chapters, chapter 19, Jesus is going to enter Jericho. And it's his last stop, one of his last stops before Jerusalem where he dies. And of all the houses he could have chosen to stay at, of all the houses he could have socialized in, of all the people that he could have chosen to eat and drink with, he picks Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of the region. Zacchaeus would be like, you know, Al Capone and Rod Blagojevich all in one. Jesus is basically saying this in verses four and following of chapter 15. Yes, they're flocking to me now, verse one, but you have no idea all the work I've done over the past 14 chapters to get to this point where they flock to me. Isn't it great? Before the big, nasty, public, hated sinners started flocking to Jesus, he created a culture for them to want to flock to. And he created a reputation for himself of how he would treat them when they got there. And so this thread, this theme in Luke of Jesus's pursuit of an interaction with tax collectors and sinners is brought to a conclusion by Jesus's summary statement of the Zacchaeus story in Luke 19. In Luke 19, 10, Jesus says this, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus' response to their grumbling that he receives and eats with, with these sinners is, you don't know the half of it. 
Not only uh, did I receive sinners when they started coming to me, but I proactively pursued sinners in my earthly mission. But further, not only did Jesus intentionally pursue sinners once he came in the human life, he says in chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man, the Messiah, God in skin, God incarnate, God in the flesh, came to earth in order to seek and save the lost. Pharisees and the scribes, they had it all wrong. The Messiah wasn't going to come and reward them for their obedience to the law and their exclusions of sinners from the community. The Messiah was Jesus. And when Jesus came, he came directly to sinners, lived in community with sinners. And then after a perfect life of obedience to the law of God, he died for those very same sinners. Right past the nice, polite, religious people. If you're new to the Bible, the story of the Bible, the message of the Bible is not this. Perform, achieve, obey your way to God. It's not when you realize how much of a mess you've made of your life like we all have. It's not uh, you first and foremost have to seek God wholeheartedly and then he's going to receive you and he's going to be gracious to you and he's going to be merciful to you and he's going to be forgiving to you. That's part of the story. But that's not even half of it. First and foremost, the story of the Bible is this. God seeks us. God sees us in our sinfulness and in our rebellion and in our lostness and in our brokenness and in our confusion and in our spiritual deadness. And he has compassion on us. He cares for us. We're precious to him. We're valuable to him. We're like one of a hundred sheep. No, we're like one of ten coins. No, we're like one of two sons. And God enters into our precarious and our hopeless situation and he saves us. Receiving repentant sinners is the second half of it. Did you see the story yesterday on abcnews.com of John Candelaria? Uh, John Candelaria is a 25-year-old man who was in his seventh-floor apartment in Manhattan when the superstorm uh, super Sandy hit. And Candelaria was watching the floodwaters rise in the street and he realized that a driver was stuck in one of the taxis below. And at one point, the parked taxi did a 360-degree turn and it ended up in a deeper part of the rising flood uh, in the street. In his own words, Candelaria said, I just couldn't watch a man die right in front of me. I wouldn't be able to live with myself for the rest of my life knowing I could have done something and I didn't do it. When Candelaria got to the street. The water was chest deep and it was freezing cold. And he pushed through the brisk current and he reached the taxi just as the water level within the taxi was at the taxi driver's chin. The taxi driver had given up, was as good as dead, was lost. Candelaria had to pull him from the car, put him on his shoulders, and carry him to safety. He, he reported that going to the car and coming back from the car at multiple times, he didn't think he was going to make it. He, he thought that the current was going to drown him. He thought a power line might come down and electrocute him. But he said, I just kept going because I had to do something. A neighbor on the fifth floor of Candelaria's building watched the entire rescue unfold, and she said this, he's a hero. More of us saw it happening, but only he went out there. He just did it. That's a hero. A hero doesn't think about himself. He just thinks about helping other people. Regarding tax collectors and sinners, the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. The word for lost in our text and in Luke 19.10 is the Greek word for perish. The sheep was lost. It was perished, if you will. It was as good as dead unless the shepherd comes and finds it and gives it life. Jesus doesn't just describe himself as a shepherd of sheep in the parable of Luke 15. He says he's the good shepherd in John 10. He says he's the great shepherd in Hebrews 13. He says he's the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5. If I could just mix metaphors for a moment, Jesus is watching from above. He sees us in a perilous and hopeless state. He knows that we can do nothing to save ourselves or rescue ourselves, and he chooses to come to enter in, to incarnate, to descend, to seek and save the lost, the perished, the dead. And in the heroic mission, he didn't think, man, I might die or I could die. He knew that he would die. In John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, no one takes my life from me. It's not an accident that I'm on the cross. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. He lays down his life for us. We are not swept away by a flood outside of ourselves and by a flood outside of our own choosing. We we are swept away by our own sin, our own rebellion and our own choosing, and we are swept away by our own guilt. In order to give us life, once he got to us, he had to die for us in our place. For us to be found, he had to be lost. For us to come alive, he had to die. Jesus is saying, of course, God receives sinners when they come home to him because he's gracious, he's forgiving, and he's merciful, but you don't know the half of it. So next week, we're going to look at the picture of repentance that's given to the prodigal son. It's it's referenced in verse 7, it's referenced in verse 10, the the chapter 1, the chapter 2 of this parable, and we're going to look at what the human experience uh, is of God finding us in repentance. We're going to see what it feels like to be us when the shepherd finds us. But but Jesus' point is this. Before the sinner repents and returns to the gracious God of heaven, that sinner was valued by God. That sinner was sought by God. That sinner was found by God before he ever came to his senses. Let's conclude this morning a few thoughts on the mission of the church. The mission of the church. And I confess this may be a rabbit trail from the text. I'm not sure. But whether it is or isn't, it doesn't matter much to me because I think we desperately need to hear it. Pick up in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. I've found the coin that I had lost. Now, there, there, there are three scholarly takes, if you will, on verses 8 and 9, and all of them are biblically true. Some scholars believe that Jesus is just giving another story here to emphasize the point he already made in the previous story. Some believe that the focus of verses 8 and 9 is on the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, that Jesus was emphasized in the first chapter of the story, the Good Shepherd, the Father, is emphasized in the third story, the the Gracious Father receiving home the repentant Son. And and, and many see the Holy Spirit in verses 8 and 9 being emphasized since the Holy Spirit is the one sent by Jesus to find And the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the minds and the hearts and the eyes of the lost sinners being converted. Third, some believe that Luke here is referencing the church. 
Those who have been found by the Spirit are now in their lives being used by the Spirit to seek out and share the gospel with the lost. The reasoning is this. The church is the bride of Christ. In the church, Matthew 5, Philippians 2, for example, they're the light of the world. They are in the world, shining light, and lost are being found because of the light. And so which is it? Which was on Jesus' mind? Which was on Luke's mind when 8 and 9 was spoken and recorded? I don't know. But as I said before, all three of these are biblical. They're all taught somewhere else in Scripture. And so what I want to stop and think about now is I want to think about the mission of the church. I want to assume that the third view is the right view because it doesn't really matter. Because in John 20, 21, Jesus, right before ascending to heaven, he said this to his disciples. He said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so also I'm sending you. He uses this particle of comparison. He says, inasmuch or in the same way or to the degree that the Father sent me, in that same manner, I am sending you. So are verses 8 and 9 about, uh, about Jesus? Are they about the Holy Spirit? Are they about the church? Yes. The call of God on the redeemed, on the found, is to see the lost as precious and valuable to God. To see them as significant enough to stop whatever we're doing to seek them in hopes of finding them. To seek diligently and carefully, verse 8. All I want to do now is I want to ask a series of questions that I want us to personally reflect on. I want us to interact in community over these questions. I often say that the sermon is the beginning of the conversation at New City. The second step of the conversation is for you to reflect personally on what was taught, uh, for you to reflect prayerfully and biblically on what you heard. The third step of the conversation is to dialogue in community. We dialogue in communities so that we can gain even more clarity uh, from each other and, and with each other. And, and we also, in community, can encourage one another to the life that we think Jesus is calling us to. So if you think, if, let's say, if I think that the sermon is the final word, I've elevated myself to the place of God. If you enter into community and don't think about it on your own, you're a, you're a codependent fool. If you never humbly enter into community, you're an independent fool. Either way, this is the beginning of the conversation. And so in home groups this week, you have the opportunity to dialogue on some of these questions. And the premise is this, if Jesus is our model, and if we're being sent into the mission in the manner he was sent, a few questions. Are we being intentional in how we live life? Are are we even trying to get into the lives of those who are not yet found? Can we even name anyone that we're proactively seeking for the sake of the gospel who's lost and dead? And how we think of our jobs and our lunch hour and our commute and our fitness and our vacation time and our parenting and our social media and our choices on education, is there any intentionality and thinking for mission at all? Are we partying with, eating with, socializing with, mingling with, enjoying the lost? We're going to talk about it more in a couple weeks, but but the fact of the matter is this. Jesus partied a lot. He partied to be near the lost, and he partied whenever the lost were found, whenever they repented. Are we even coming close to living life in such a way that religious people, so are we living life in such a way that when people who are trying to save themselves see us, they're scandalized? 
Or are we even coming close to living our lives in such a way that irreligious folks are being saved? In Colossians 4, Jesus is, uh, excuse me, Paul is telling believers how to live life around those not yet in the church. And he says, be gracious, be salty, be ready to answer their questions. What does it assume? That we're in the game. That we're in relationship. That someone might ask us a question about our lives. Are we in our little religious enclaves, scared to death of the world? Are we thinking, you know what? I'd be willing to welcome a nasty sinner who's repentant. If they want to come on in, they can. I mean, after all, we're all big sinners saved by grace. Or are we like Jesus, moving into the places where the world lives, the savory salt and illuminating light? Are we on the seventh floor window thinking and maybe even yelling down to the street, hey, I got warm clothes and hot chocolate up here if you can make your way up here? Or are we entering into the fray? Sacrificing comfort and safety for the hopes of rescuing the lost, the perished, the dead. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me in the same manner, so I'm sending you. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm supposed to pray a prayer of thanksgiving and supplication at this point because that's what I've been told to do, but we must first confess God, we have lived galactically selfish lives. We have lived scared lives. We have lived lives of self-centeredness and consumption. We have lived luxurious lives while the lost around us perish and continue on their path to an eternity away from you. Jesus, we have enjoyed the doctrine of you seeking us and we have forgotten that you send us. We have enjoyed being the one in the car drowning who is rescued, but God, we have not seen that the one main reason we're still on earth is to go find other people drowning in cars and pull them out. God, we have so much to confess. Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We thank you that there's a party in heaven, not when we obey, but when we repent. We thank you that our entrance into your kingdom is in the humble way of repentance. May we repent to get in and to remember that we've turned away from that way of living unto life abundant in you. Jesus, I thank you after your selfless life that you died for my selfish life. I thank you for after your life of, of leaving comfort and safety to proclaim the gospel, uh, that you died for my comfort seeking and my safety seeking. I thank you that the gospel's true that you pursue really selfish, nasty sinners like me. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you compel us to good deeds? Would you enliven us to the lost around us, to care about them, to cry over them, to have our hearts broken for them, to consider their fate and beg you for the right and the privilege of being used by you to save them? God, this church is in great need of your Holy Spirit to give us the gifts of repentance, faith, and obedience. Would you come?